turn with me to Philippians in chapter 1. Philippians in chapter 1 and we'll read verse 6 together. Let's pray together. Father, we just approach your word and we give thanks again for the privilege of having your revelation, of having your holy book. We thank you that it tells us of the way of salvation. We thank you that it tells us about Jesus. We thank you for his humiliation. We thank you for his exaltation. And we give thanks in his name. Amen. So Philippians 1 and verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When we started our study of Philippians together, we, we noted that Philippians is full of thanksgiving and it's full of joy. And it started out with thanksgiving and with joy. And if you look at verses three to five, which we read last Sunday afternoon, last Thursday afternoon, the passage that we just read in verse six is a continuation of that one sentence. So it's three to five and six. This one thought, this prayer of joyful thanksgiving that Paul opened the letter with. And last week we saw that the Apostle Paul shows his gratitude, his joy, and his focus on that gospel partnership, that gospel fellowship that he has with the Philippians. He's thankful for the Philippians. Every time he remembers the Philippians, his heart is flooded with thankfulness because of their love and care for him, because of what God is doing in them, but because of their fellowship, their partnership with him in the gospel. We should be thankful for those that we have fellowship with in the gospel. And Paul says that he's joyful in his prayer for them. If you remember, he says, in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. So he's focused on the partnership with them in the gospel. And the first thing he identifies in that prayer, which is the occasion of his thankfulness and joy, is their fellowship with him, their communion with him, their participation with him, their partnership with him in the cause of the gospel. It's not simply that they to with him have embraced the Lord Jesus as he's offered in the gospel, though they do. It's not just that they, like him, are marked with an overwhelming experience of God's sovereign grace in their first embrace of the gospel. Paul was met by the Lord Jesus Christ himself on the way to persecute believers in Damascus, and he was transformed, he was changed. And then Lydia is by the riverside and Paul shows up in Philippi having seen a vision of a man from Macedonia calling him to come over and help us. What does Luke tell us about Lydia? The Lord opened her heart to believe. Then the Philippian jailer, he was about to kill himself. The apostle Paul shared with him the gospel and God enabled him to believe. And his whole household were brought, were brought into the Lord's family. 
And so it is not just that they have this shared experience of God's sovereign grace in their own conversions. It is that they had this common burden for and delight to serve God in the spread of the gospel. For the Apostle Paul, for the Apostle Paul, this gives him great joy to know that these Philippians, though they were poorer than the Corinthians, they were generous to the point of being lavish in their giving to Paul for the spread of the gospel. Very often when Paul is serving somewhere else and serving by vocationally, he was a tent maker in order to put bread on the table to pay the rent, in order to buy clothing. He would be tent making and preaching. And a gift would arrive from the Philippians who wanted to give to Paul even though they themselves were poor, even though they had little compared to other congregations, because they were burdened for the same thing that Paul was burdened for, namely men and women, boys and girls would come to save in faith in Jesus Christ. And then to see churches planted and built up in the truth of God's word. And, and you know there is no one who more wanted to devote himself wholly to the gospel ministry than Paul. So it delighted his heart when he received gifts from the Philippians because he knew the sacrifice behind those gifts. And they had the same burden to see souls won for Christ, the church built up, and to see people growing in Jesus Christ. So that's why Paul speaks of the fellowship that he has with them in the gospel, the mutual burden for the spread of the gospel. And those things make him think of them joyfully. So verse 5 tells us the first reason why Paul is thankful and joyful for them. And verse 6, which we've just read, is the second reason. So the first reason he gives for his joy for the Philippians is this fellowship in the spread of the gospel. But the second reason is all about God. And it is the big picture. And Paul has seen already in his ministry ups and downs. He's been on mission journeys with colleagues, declaring the word of truth. And then he'd had colleagues abandon him. He'd seen people's, people that he had discipled turn against him. He had seen people who had made a profession of faith in Christ reject Christ. He'd seen people zealous for the gospel become points of division in the church. He would even see people preaching the gospel out of envy toward him, wanting to see win more converts than he. Paul, even in his short ministry, had seen some pretty hard things. So where is Paul's confidence from? What is the source of his joy? When he's seen those hard things, those ups and downs, in the course of his ministry. He tells us in verse 6. He tells us that his joy and his confidence come from the fact that God is at work in his people's salvation from beginning to end and nothing else will shake that reality. That should be the cause of our joy. That God is at work in our salvation from beginning to end. So Paul, no matter what the ups and downs of ministry have been or are, 
can rest assured that God is involved in the work of salvation from beginning to end. And Paul tells us that point explicitly in verse 6. I'm sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is because that God is at work in our conversion, in our justification and our sanctification, in our glorification. I'll say that again, especially after this morning, in English, instead of using Latin words that have been transliterated into the English language. God is at work in the first nanosecond of your belief in Jesus Christ. God is at work in changing your heart to believe on Jesus Christ, just as he was at work for your salvation before the foundation of the world. God is at work in declaring you righteous, <coughs> to be right with him, in accepting you in the righteousness of his Son, in the pardoning and the forgiving of your sin. He is at work in that. His initiative is involved. When I first became enamoured with Reformed theology oh, some 20 odd years ago, it was that I, couldn't, I knew I couldn't, couldn't save myself. I knew I couldn't. So God had to take the initiative if I was to be saved. And God is at work in your growing up to maturity in grace. Salvation, thank the Lord, is not something that starts with you and then continues with the work of God. Or does it start with God? And then he says the rest is up to you. Now there is effort involved, I stand by everything I said this morning, but ultimately it is the grace of God, amazing grace. Salvation from beginning to end is the work of the grace of God. So he is at work building you up in Christ and he is at work one day to present you faultless before his throne with exceeding joy and great glory. We'll stand, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, my friend, as your Saviour and as your Lord, you will stand before the throne of, of his throne in Christ, with all the saints, perfected. So conversion, justification, sanctification, glorification. That's what these, these words mean. They're, they're code words, if you like, so you don't have to take as long as I just did to say what these things mean. And the, the Apostle Paul is celebrating that in this passage. And Paul is saying, one of the reasons, Philippians, that I'm so thankful, one of the reasons that I'm so joyful, is that I know who is at work in you. So his thankfulness is not only in that sense about them. It's not just about what you're doing now. It is about what God is at work in you. What he has done for you in your conversion. What he has done for you in your justification. What he has done and is doing in your sanctification. And what he will do on that last day. God is at work. And that, my friend, my dear friend, is the foundation of a believer's confidence. That God is at work. That God is at work in the totality of our salvation. 
that his work is the work of saving and changing his people. We can be transformed, we can be changed. Do you ever despair that you can ever change? There's one thing that can change you, and that's the gospel. His work of saving, of changing, of building up of his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it or him. And that's what Paul is giving thanks for in this passage. In verse 5 he gives thanks because the Philippians are gospel partners with him. But in verse 6 Paul is thankful and rejoicing because God is at work in their salvation and ours. I want you to see six things that we learn. Don't get too nervous about them. This is kind of like a one-point sermon and I'm trying to make six points just to make you nervous, but not really. Is that God is at work in your salvation from beginning to end. Salvation is God's work from start to finish. But what I want to do in six points of observation is that we look at that truth from slightly different directions, like a multifaceted diamond. We look at it from slightly different directions and see six implications of that one truth that God is at work from beginning to end in our salvation. Number one, salvation is God's work. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who was it that began the work in you? He. Who is he? God. Who began the good work in you? God. Paul is emphasising the initiative of God in salvation. Salvation is the work of God. Jonah declared salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the initiator of it. That's something that Paul emphasises over and over and over. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were what in your trespasses and sins? A little bit sick? A bit unwell? Your parents fault the way you are? You're a victim? No, you're dead. Dead people don't do too much in my observation. Then Ephesians 2 verse 5, And even when we were, what in our trespasses? Dead. He made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Who took the initiative? Very clearly. You? Were you slightly better than your neighbour? Are you slightly softer, more gentle, more open? Was it you? No, it was God. Because you were dead. And dead people are bad initiators. But God did, took the initiative and did what? He made you alive in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. The gospel is a beautiful thing. So is that the only time Paul says that? No. Colossians 2 verse 13. But you were Dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Paul emphasises it repeatedly in his writings. John, the Apostle John, John 1 verse 12, but all who, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And what John is saying is that those who receive Jesus Christ, those who trust in Jesus Christ, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, 
are counted by God, adopted by God, appointed by God as his own child. And God, John is marvelling at this glorious thing and he's speaking about faith in Christ with the beautiful image of receiving him. Why is he doing that? Because he's just said what? John 1 verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And then he says, but to all who did receive him and welcomed him into their homes. And John is using that as a picture of faith, receiving him to our homes, into our lives, into our hearts. But after showing you that picture of faith and saying that all those who believe are the children of God, they're not just pardoned of their sins and forgiven of their transgressions, but they're welcomed into God's family. You welcome Jesus into your home and God welcomes you into his. But then he tells you how it happens. Verse 13, who were born not of blood. Of, it's not by genealogy that you believe in Jesus Christ. John knew many people who had the blood of Abraham flowing in their veins, who hadn't received the Messiah, who had been promised to Abraham, and he knew many people who did not have the blood of Abraham flowing in their veins, who had received the Messiah, who had been promised to Abraham. John 10, verse 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. So it's not genealogy. It's not a bloodline that awakens a person to faith in Christ. And then he says, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. It's not our own human nature in our innate ability and willpower that leads us to be able to exercise saving faith. Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. A child is brought into this world who is the will of the mother and the father as they join together and God in his mercy grants to them through that union children. And John is saying that that is not the way Christians are born. How are they born? But of God. But of God. Who takes the initiative? God. Why? Because we're dead and we cannot. God takes the initiative in salvation and Paul celebrates that truth. He never uses that truth as any other reason but to give thanks. It's a cause of joy for him. Luke talks about this in Acts 11. Luke never misses a chance to tell you God takes the initiative in salvation. And Peter has just come back in Acts chapter 11 to the church in Jerusalem and is scratching his head. He's saying, now, you're not going to believe what I've just seen. But you remember how Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost? Well, I just got back from Antioch, where I was with some Gentiles. And there was a Gentile who was a Roman soldier. And guess what? I saw the Holy Spirit poured out on these Gentiles on a Roman soldier and his family. The Holy Spirit's been given to the Gentiles too. And what is the response of the church in Jerusalem in Acts 11? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. It isn't that the Gentiles have taken the initiative in this. God granted repentance to the Gentiles. Which is the same language that Paul uses in Philippians 1 and verse 29. It's been granted to you 
that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The picture is your belief and your suffering are both received by you passively, given to you by a grant from God. I don't know anybody who walks around saying, today I want to suffer. Some people might say it, but it's only to draw attention to themselves. But God grants us to suffer for our good. Restraining the evil one so he does not destroy us in that suffering, but God by his Holy Spirit refines us like gold and purifies us so we become more like his son through that suffering. But we didn't order that. We didn't order that suffering. We didn't take the initiative in it. We didn't say, Lord, would you please let me suffer today? And the Apostle Paul says, belief and suffering, God grants it. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says your salvation started before the beginning when God chose you. And even when we were preaching, remember what we were preaching was that it was God who was calling you through the preaching of the gospel. That, that is what God has ordained as, as, as the means to draw people into his family is the preaching of the gospel. It's God taking the initiative to draw you to himself. It isn't that I sought the Lord and then he sought me. It's not that I had faith in the Lord and then the Lord responded to me in love. It isn't that I loved the Lord and the Lord loved me. What does John say? We love because he first loved us. The hymn writer said, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Saviour, true. No, I was found of thee. I thank the Lord for that. Not a day go by when I give thanks to the Lord for the enormity of my salvation. Because he was the seeker, he was the mover, he was the initiator. So do you understand why Paul is emphasising this so much in this passage? He was the one who did what? He began a good work in you. Now I want you to understand that Paul is not just saying that God began the work and then left the rest up to you. Now there's effort required in our sanctification, we saw that this morning. But he's saying that salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. He is not saying that there is nothing you have to do. He isn't saying that faith is not important. He's not saying that your living is not important. He's not saying that your exertion is not important. But he's emphasising the initiative of God's grace in salvation from start to finish. And he does it all the time. Philippians 2 verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is emphasising that God is at work in you now. It isn't that he started the work and then said, On your own, son, you take it from here. Aren't you thankful God didn't do that? 
You're on your own now. No, it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that gives Paul confidence, it should give us confidence, it's the basis of our assurance. God's involvement, and I thank God, his initiative, his preservation, is the ground of our experience of confidence in the Christian life. If you've been a Christian for any time at all, you know that you look in the mirror of your own heart and you see things there that you hope no one else ever sees. And if your innate goodness and improvement is the ground of your confidence, let me break some terrible news to you, you will never have any confidence at all. But if God's work is the ground of your confidence, that he will keep you to the end. Or as John Newton put it, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far. And what does the last line say? And I'll take it from here. And grace will lead me home. And that's what Paul, Paul is celebrating. He's saying, Philippians, I look at you and I'm joyful. I know you'll be persecuted. I know you still sin. I know the evil one is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking who he could devour. But I can be joyful and thankful and confident. Why? Because God is at work in you. Paul is not in denial. He's not been rosy-eyed. He's been wide-eyed at the realities that these Philippians will face. It's, we need to be wide-eyed at the realities we will face, but my friend, be wider-eyed at the reality of God's sovereign initiative in salvation from start to completion. Some of you I know are praying for children or for spouses. And you need to hear this word today because you've been praying a long time and you've not seen the answer to your prayers. But remember what Paul says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So salvation is the work of God. Secondly, the work of God's grace in us is a good work. It is a blessed work. It is a noble work. It is an excellent work because God's grace works in us to make us who were bad to be good and to make us who did not want to commune with God God's grace works that we do want to commune with God it makes those of us who did not enjoy God or did not want to enjoy God to want to enjoy him it makes those of us who did not want to glorify him to want to glorify him so it fits us to glorify and enjoy him, to have fellowship with and commune with him forever. The work of grace is a good work. It makes us want to be godly. It makes us ashamed of sin, so that we might enjoy communion with him. That's why Paul says, he who began a good work in you. And I want to make one point, just one point, Satan never begins any good work. Satan does not start a good work. Satan does not want you to love God more. 
Satan does not want you to treasure God more. Satan does not want you to delight in God. Satan does not want you to enjoy God. Satan does not want you to want more of God. So when you see this being built in you, it is not the work of Satan, it is the work, it's the good work of God. Oh, you may see broken-hearted in interruptions in that work, but when you see that work being worked in you, who's working that work? It's God. It's a good work, and Satan cannot copy the good work of God. He will never make you love God more, treasure God more, exalt God more, or love the gospel more. Thirdly, this salvation, this good work, is unfinished work here. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The work of grace begun in this life, but will not finish here. The Christian life is not one in uninterrupted climb heavenward, not, as we said this morning, letting go and letting God, nor is it catapulting to perfection and then a continuous experience of perfection in his life. Now, you and I both know it's a life filled with peaks and valleys. And sometimes the valleys are so deep, we never think that we'll get out of them. And I want to tell you that this word is one of the most encouraging words to me in all of Scripture. Maybe you've seen that bumper sticker or that fridge magnet. Be patient with me. God is not done with me yet. Um, and how true is that? Paul says this work is never finished here. If I thought that I would finish here, that would be the end of me because I know what I'm like. And I'm sure you do too. And Paul is saying that the work of grace is not finished here. As long as we're in this imperfect, sinful world, there's always much more to do. Wise saints have always understood this. Thomas, Thomas Kelly wrote in his hymn, Trust in him, ye saints, forever. He is faithful, changing never. Neither force nor guile can sever those he loves from him. Keep us, Lord, though keep us cleaving to thyself and still believing till the hour of thy receiving thy victorious bride. Always a paraphrase of Philippians 1 verse 6. And then his last verse, then we shall be where we would be. Then we shall be what we should be. Things which are not now nor could be, then shall be our own. Isn't that our glorious hope? Isn't that beautiful? Then we shall be where we would be. Then we shall be what we should be. Things which are not now nor could be, then shall be our own. We will be, we will be in glory what we ought to have been. The way that God made us in his image. It cannot be in this fallen world where we are imperfect, but it will be on that day. John Newton said, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient I am. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor the evil in me, and I would cleave to that which, which is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon, I will put off with mortality both sin and imperfection. 
But though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And so therefore I can heartily join with the Apostle Paul and say by the grace of God I am what I am. Isn't that good? That's where Christians live right there. And that's what Paul is saying. So Christians never think that this work of perfection will come to a terminus in this life. It is unfinished in this life and it's vital to remember that. Fourthly, salvation is a certain work because God always finishes what he starts. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It won't be finished until glory, but I declare it is certain. It is certain he will complete it. God finishes what he starts. Fifthly, salvation is a perfect word of God because God only does things perfectly. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying God will complete the work because God never fails to complete what he starts. God does not do imperfect work. God always, to the fullest degree of perfection, completes the work he begins, so you will be made perfect. That's, that's something to look forward to, isn't it? Something to look forward to? And you can be confident or persuaded, I am persuaded, that God will not only never forsake you, but that one day he will perfect you. Do, do, do you ever think about that? He will not forsake you, but one day he will perfect you. Because God does not do second-rate work. God only does what is perfect. And sixthly, Paul teaches us that salvation is a work that will only be perfect in the day and the appearing and the judgment of Jesus Christ. I'm sure of this. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, this will be the day when you are fully made perfect in the day of the appearing of Jesus Christ. He's saying that your perfection will not occur until then, and it will not occur until the perfection of all the saints. Hebrews says, in 11, chapter 11, verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. The chapter of faith. Since God had provided something better for us. You are waiting then. I mean, I thought about that. I read it again this week, and I read it again and again and again. Okay, let's, let me read it again. But all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what is promised, since God hath provided something better for them. That's what you would, you would think it might say. But it's suddenly God has provided something better for us. Which is a strange strange argumentation. God did not give to them what he had promised because he has something better for us. That apart from us they should not be made perfect. So the author of Hebrews is saying 
and if he ain't Paul, I reckon he learns it from Paul, that it will be the day of the coming, the appearing, the judgment, the reign, the rule of Jesus Christ, when all the saints at the same time, from Adam to the very last person who's converted before the coming of Jesus Christ, at the exact same moment, we will all be made perfected. Nobody ahead of anyone else in Christ all at the same time. All to his praise and all to his glory. Isn't that a thought? And the Apostle Paul says, Philippians, I can only imagine what you're going through in this life. I can only imagine what you will face tomorrow. Paul had a pretty good guess because of what he was going through for the gospel. But though he could only imagine what they were going through in this life, he was certain, he was persuaded that God would perfect on the last day what he had started in them and of that the Apostle Paul was supremely confident. So, if your ultimate assurance and confidence in this life is because of something that you have done, if because of a decision that you made, because something that you have achieved, because of you, 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 because of something that you've attained, you're in for a discouraging life. Because the rug will be pulled out from underneath you a hundred times. But if your preservation is based on the work of God, then nothing can shake you. On this rock I will build my church, on Jesus Christ. And that is the kind of confidence that we need today. That he who begins a work, will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Jesus Christ. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Amen.